0: welcome to medium cool a movie podcast i'm your host austin glidden and you can find us on social media at medium cool pod on instagram facebook and twitter that's Facebook.com backslash medium cool pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, will pop up, and at medium cool pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Also, you know, it really helps content creators. And in this case, we are the content creator uh, to subscribe or follow on these on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to podcasts. That honestly really helps. As well as if you've listened to a few episodes and you like what you hear or don't, it's up to you. Um, you know, rate it, give us a rate, the podcast, give us a review, the whole thing. All of that really helps content creators. And in this case, like I said, it really helps us. So thank you so much. Today, we're going to be talking about the Paul Schrader film from 2017 called First Reformed. And we, being me and my good old friend, Jake Bottileary, he did the John Cassavetti's marathons with us, giving Joe a break this week. But before I get there, I just want to say this. I watched another episode, I still haven't finished it yet, okay, I'm, I'm only two episodes in, but we just had an, a conversation about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Joe and I, a few weeks ago, and I started watching uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney Plus, and the first episode I was like, man... I really like what they're doing here because they're actually giving conflict that is beyond the spectrum of the villains. You know, like some internal conflict that these people are independently facing. Um, It's also establishing, it's taking its time and establishing these characters and where they are now and what they're doing in a post-Captain America, post-Avengers kind of world for them. And I really like that. So I I, I just watched the second episode, right? And the second episode kind of deals with Uh, Bucky and the Falcon kind of finally uh, reuniting a bit, you know, not as like partners per se, but just as people just like meeting each other again and being kind of at odds with one another because they were both kind of a part of Captain America's life, but they were like opposite ends of that spectrum, you know, so they're kind of at odds with each other a bit, but dude, let me, listen, I don't love this show, okay, I don't love it. It's not like I think it's the greatest show ever. I still think the writing is kind of ridiculous, a lot like the MCU movies, stuff like that. But dude, these movies take plenty of time to actually, you know, try to make you care. Um, and and I, I, find it, I find it really interesting because here's the thing. Why is the Falcon and the Winter Soldier so much better than the vast majority of MCU movies just in two episodes? Now, of course, they could ruin this. Don't get me wrong. But why is this the case? Because they freaking develop shit. They allow the show time to breathe, so you can kind of fall into this show. You can immerse yourself into this thing. It's not moving so quickly you can't grab onto it. It gives you some time to breathe and really kind of take in what's going on. And finally, based on what I've learned so far, and again, this could get ruined, but up to this point, the villains have a cause, That makes them villains to the protagonists, from the protagonist's point of view, but they are not inherently evil. This is fantastic. Okay? People love these villains, and by people, I mean the people in the show, a lot of people love who are being painted out as the villains, but they're only villains to the protagonist so far. Okay? Are they a threat? Yes, and you can watch the show and find out why. But the point is, I, I, love, I love this gray area. Not everyone has to be a complete asshole. They tried this with Thanos. I still don't think they did it you know, the best they could. It was all right. But man, come on. I got to give this show a little bit of credit. I, I, it makes me wish all of the MCU shows, except for the Avengers movies, were TV shows. Because if they had little six-part TV series shows of all of these individual movies, and then just put out these huge... Marvel event movies that are like the Avengers things cool. Just do that. This is one time where you're going to hear me really push the idea of TV over film when it comes to this stuff because man, they're doing it a whole lot better than those movies and I'd much rather watch something that has developed and taking its time than watch something that is just rushed through. If you haven't seen The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I can I can recommend that the if you're a fan of the Marvel movies or just like you might just be like me, and you just like to watch all of them, even if you're not a big big fan. You just like you like watching these MCU movies, um, as we've talked about already. I don't like most of them, I feel like, uh, but I do. I just want to see them all. Watch the uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, it's like a six part series on Disney Plus, and it's interesting. And I think so far it's worth seeing. I am actually compelled by what's happening in the show. I look forward to watching more. I also need to make a correction. From last week, moving on. I, I talked about The Get Together, a movie that I got a screener for, and, and I went ahead and did a, re, a little kind of mini-review about it, and it's pretty good. It's all right. And in it, I talked about, I've never been to a party like this, and I don't even think my wife has been. So my wife, Amanda, listens to the, the episode, and she comes in, or she texts me or something, wherever she was, and she's like, hey, you need to correct this. I have been to a party like this. There was just no pool. So, I I stand corrected. My wife has been to a party like the get-together, and I was told to correct this on the episode. So, Amanda, if you're listening, I've corrected it. Alright, I'm going to go talk to my friend Jake Bottoleri about Paul Schrader's First Reformed and uh, as we transition into that, I'll let you hear a call I received from our friend Matt Sosie at Film Sociology at WFYI Radio. And um, here's what Matt had to say about why I should watch it.
1: Hi, Austin. This is Matthew Sosie from Film
0: Sociology. And yes, you should watch First Reform, which was the best film of the year when that came out. Now, as a as an old guy, I'm a big Paul Schrader fan. He's my go to filmmaker if I need a story about a man in a downward spiral, and that's definitely first performed one of the, one of Ethan Hawke's best performances in his career, first time screenplay nomination for Schrader. Look at his writing credits and then think about that. Better late than never, I suppose,
1: and and well deserved. But yeah, uh, and especially when you have to deal with
0: the the aspect of is religion a spirituality or business which it is brought up in this film so anyway enjoy Muzzle tov talk to you later all right i'm here with jake botteleary you will all remember him from our cassavetes marathon uh we're going to be talking about first reformed and this was actually your idea jake
1: uh, yeah, it, it was. Seemed like a pretty intuitive uh, choice for my next uh, spot on here. So thank you for having me back on Medium Pool.
0: Yeah, dude. Nope. Well, first off, my pleasure. Secondly, it's funny because you're probably like the 17th person that's texted me about this movie over the last three years. <laughs> I'll get a random text just randomly yeah. out of nowhere and someone will be like, dude, First Reformed. What would you think of that? I'm like, I haven't no, seen it I yet. No, I mean, it's... You know yeah. what I mean? It's it's one of those movies. It's, it's
1: compelling, whatever. Like I think it's one of those movies that just even people that see it that are like really affected by it in a way they don't like. It's like compelling either way. It's yeah. like compelling whatever you take from it. So,
0: so I want to I want to go ahead and uh, and kind of introduce the film so we can get into it here. Uh, First for Reformed is written and directed by as we already mentioned, Paul Schrader. Uh, it stars Ethan Hawke, Amanda Seyfried, and. Of all people, Cedric the Entertainer, which is, yeah. like and, and he's kind of great in it. We'll get yeah. to that uh, in a moment. But uh, uh, I, I misspoke in past episodes. I said this was the four-year anniversary. The movie came out in 2017. The wide release was May 18, 2018, actually. So it's the three-year anniversary since its uh, official release. At a budget of 3.5 million dollars, only made four million. But at least it made its money back. That, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, but who who makes movies for three and a half million dollars? That's not some up and coming like indie guy. You
1: know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's well, kinda... not only that, but it <laughs> it does the foreign film thing where when you watch, there's like eighteen thousand co-producing so credits many. in the opening credits, which which means you know they got their like like they had a bunch of companies giving them like
0: ten thousand dollars. You know,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly, like. <laughs>
0: Dude, you know, I actually you, you said talk that about
1: like a collection plate funding the film. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah, I said that to my wife because she watched it with me, and uh, there was one name that kept popping up, and so then I would just say it every time it popped up, and she's like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "You know how many times I've said that? How so many times it's popped up on here already? Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly, the big, the big spender." But, anyways, first reformed, first reformed follows a pastor, Reverend Ernest uh, Toller played by Hawk, who oversees a small church in upstate New York and uh, starts to spiral out of control after a soul-shaking encounter with an unstable environmental activist and his pregnant wife, played by Seafried. For me, though, the film goes much deeper, looking into the relationship between religious spirituality and business, Jesus's teachings versus his followers' actions, a pastor's cognitive dissonance with his actions versus his beliefs. But deeper still, Jake, the struggle between hope and despair. The film ends with a question of sorts. Does Reverend Toller live or die? Now this might sound like a spoiler, but trust me it's not. We'll talk about that in a moment. This is a debate that every publication has an opinion on if you google it. <laughs> okay. It's true. It's true. So Sophia Coppola asked Paul Schrader after the uh, about the ending of First Reformed on an A24 podcast and he said this. And I'm paraphrasing because I don't want any deliberate spoilers here. I don't know what the ending is about. It can be read one of two ways. One, that a miracle has occurred and his life is spared. The other is equally, in my sense, optimistic, where he, uh, which is that he chooses to end his life and is suffering greatly through it. And God comes to him, who has not talked to him the entire movie, and says, Reverend Toller, you want to know what heaven looks like? Here it is. This is exactly what it looks like. Jake, we'll talk about the ending later. And listeners, again, this is a film that I think is very difficult to spoil because we could tell you every beat in the film, and honestly, the film is made up of its subtext. So you kind of have to just see it to get it. Now, full transparency, from the beginning, I didn't find First Reformed particularly entertaining most of the time. But this is a perfect example of something I've talked about many times on the show. Now, you know, if I'm not entertained by, say, a Marvel movie, for example, they usually don't have much else to keep my attention, uh, so why should I like it? You know, usually they're very shallow, uh, and I like a lot of them, don't get me wrong, but, you know, we've had an MCU episode on here. You guys know how I feel, and I've talked about this a lot. If you don't like what they're offering you, it's too surface level. There's not much to chew on beyond that. You either like it or you don't. But what's great is... First Reformed doesn't conform to what I consider entertaining, but it has a lot to chew on. And I never got bored because at the very least, there are a lot of subtextual aspects at play. And that is endlessly interesting. So, Jake, where do you stand on First Reformed? Did you find it entertaining? Was it a subtextual buffet that you could feast on? Or did it hit on both levels for you?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a good question to start us off. I think reflexively, it's definitely more of a, a buffet, a subtextual buffet. But but I, I would put a lot of asterisks against that. I, I think it's not entertaining in the sense that films are traditionally entertaining. But I, I think entertainment doesn't always mean big, shiny colors and pop music and, you know, costumed Chris Pratt. <laughs> you know delivering one liners sure I, I i think like just on a super abstract level i could talk about that. we could do a separate podcast on like do films need to be entertaining and like what does that actually mean but just on a super abstract level the comparison i th- i think in music is really apt because you know there's a time in my life where i i didn't understand ambient music i didn't understand post rock i didn't you know i wouldn't listen to scores from film as entertainment it would just be sort of a nostalgia thing and as I've gotten older I appreciate that a lot more I mean my first five years living in Los Angeles I, I lived with a film composer who really I think just by sheer nature of sharing stuff with me over time made me appreciate a certain type of music more you know with with him it was you know like Steve Reich stuff like that stuff that Is is not entertaining if you're coming from the perspective of like you know listening to like Alice in Chains and Smashing Pumpkins and stuff like that. It's very very different, but it that doesn't mean it's not entertaining. It's entertaining in a different way. So in the case of First Performed, I I think it's a movie that's full of a lot of very very heavy existential ideas not only about what it means to be a human being but specifically what it means to like live on this planet what it means to rely on certain things for satisfaction uh it's a movie that is i think very uh adept at Touching its viewers in ways that we don't like to be touched, (laughs) and so (laughs) reflexively you go. That's a great way to word it. Go ahead. (laughs) That's that's not right. That's not traditionally entertaining. But um, I I think, especially um, in the wake of seeing the film, uh, and speaking for myself, this is a movie that I had a very strong reaction to. Uh, like immediately after I watched it. But specifically, I think it's true power lies in the fact that for about a week afterwards, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And not only could I not stop thinking about it, it was a movie where I felt compelled to, A, discuss it with people who had already seen it, you being one of those people, and B, you know, people that I have in my circle, including that composer that I lived with for five years. Yeah. I was compelled to share it with people that hadn't seen it. My girlfriend, my, this, you know, this friend of mine, who I text almost every day. Um, I think that is the entertainment where you're not getting like the sort of fast food entertainment that a genre film provides you, which again, I think is totally valid. And I think a film that, aspires to do that is not inherently better or worse than any other film but um you know i do find your life is usually affected more by the films that penetrate deep oh yeah for for better or worse you know so i think looking at it under that sort of uh, uh filter i think it is entertaining it's just you know uh maybe not in a way that is pleasant (laughs) immediately, maybe not in a way that, that is, um, light and airy and easy to digest.
0: Yeah. You know, I remember, did, did you see the film, uh, nocturnal animals? I did. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing that and it ended and the way you just described this movie, that was that for me, right? Where I was like, what in the fuck just happened? Like there were some incredible scenes but I don't really understand. And so then my brain won't shut off, right? And I'm thinking about it a lot a lot. And then the more I think about it, I'm like, wait, this is starting to make sense. And you read a little bit about it and, you you know, you find all mm-hmm. these things. And once you put the puzzle together, it's one of those things where it's just like, fuck, this is so great. You know? Yeah, <laughs> you know? I,
1: I love that film. And at, at the risk of, you know, doing a separate podcast with you uh, uh an inception podcast where we do a podcast within podcast um <laughs> nocturnal animals is, is i think like first performed better going into it knowing almost nothing uh that's how i saw it yeah. i knew literally Same. nothing Same. i i knew jake gyllenhaal is in this film that's like all i knew about nocturnal animals and um yeah i i think the viewing experience is definitely enhanced the less you know um and what a fantastic ending
0: i mean yeah i mean yeah and it's yeah. great and and i only bring that up to say that it does kind of remind me not only of what you were just saying but of first reformed and i, I want to kind of clarify a few things um i i'm the same as you in terms of the the entertainment it does not have to be necessarily on the screen but it can be up in your head right as you mm-hmm. watch it sometimes i mean dude think of all the Bergman films. So You know, we're about to do a, a Bergman marathon. This is his 75th year. I don't know if you know this. He's dead, I know. But since oh, wow. his first sure. film in 1946, it's been 75 years to the year. So basically, I'm dedicating two full marathons this entire year spread throughout uh, of Bergman stuff. Plus, I own the Criterion box set, and I need to get through them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, but think what of... excuse. Th- yeah, like think of, think of some, you know, uh, of the most talked about... Bergman films, and just think about how often, in many cases, they can not really be that entertaining, but the entertainment, to use the way that you used it, comes from you kind of dissecting an, the analysis, the criticism, and kind of the mastery of how he thinks, uh, and you could say the same thing about Tarkovsky, I mean, there, there are a whole uh, uh, flood of, of filmmakers, but back, back to this, it, it's interesting, because as I was watching it, there were a few scenes that really, really grabbed me, okay, so like, in, just in general, I found the writing to be really fascinating. And, and I, I want to kind of tackle this first, because you're a mm-hmm. screenwriter. I would love to get your yeah. take on it. But I'll tell you the scene that really brought me in. and And even by the end of the film, this was my favorite scene in the film, and it's where, it's where Reverend Toller is talking to Michael, which is Seafried's uh, husband in the film, uh, near the beginning, it's like 15 minutes in. And uh, you know, he, Michael's been struggling. With a few things, he's an environmental activist. He's been struggling with just how he sees and views the world. He's been feeling a lot of despair. It's back to that kind of theme I mentioned of hope versus despair through the entire film. And so Reverend Toller sits down with Michael and they have this really, what I would say, incredible dialogue exchange about ideas, one coming from the idea of hope and spirituality, the other coming from activism true reality and despair. And I love the almost yin-yang aspect of that, right? The the dichotomy between these views, yet they both challenge one another. And yet they both, they are both, I mean, even in that moment, while Michael's talking and just like going on and on and on about something, it like gets drowned out by Reverend Toler's voiceover. And he talks about like how, man, these are the engagements these conversations that really get my juices flowing. I'm paraphrasing, of course, Mm. but he's talking about like, this is what makes me feel alive, right? Like having these things, this makes me feel like something I don't feel otherwise. Right. Well, and I I credit a lot of that to not only Schrader's direction, because the direction is obviously great. And I love the way the film looks, even in that scene, everything's just like the lighting's great. There's like muted coloring and the lighting's very dark. You know, and and just like the camera work is very subtle, if if not just on like tripods, yeah, it
1: it it defines realism. I mean, it's oh, yeah, it, you feel like you're in the room with those people. You don't really feel like you're watching a movie. And obviously, there's reasons he does that so much early on that wind up paying off with choices he makes later.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um.
1: I i i think one really interesting aspect of that. Did you have more to add to that? I don't want to cut you off. Uh, I you did, but I want you to scene. say yeah. what
0: you're saying. And I want you to talk about the writing after you say that. And I yeah. can come back to the, the visuals and the production and stuff. Sure. Yeah. I uh,
1: just, uh, going off of that scene in particular, which is sort of like the, the dynamo, you know, the inciting thing that sort of triggers everything else that happens. In Pretty much
0: film. after that, we hit, we hit like second act and we're, we're in it. Do yeah, you know I
1: mean? <laughs> like, for sure. For sure. Um, I I think going into the film knowing not a whole lot is very interesting. So uh, I'm assuming if you've made it this far into the podcast, you're either going to pause and watch it or you've seen it already. But um, I really thought that the game being played was that Michael was going to be basically the primary antagonist of the film. I I, I thought what Schrader was going to do was – Sort of give of give us this scene where this priest is challenged by this guy, who winds up becoming extremely overbearing with text messages and with wanting to meet and with I thought they were going to do some sort of weird. They yeah. have a friendship and Michael takes it too far and Teller doesn't know what to do. They the traitor so does not go in that direction. Not and In fact, it's so one eighty that Michael is more this paragon of ideas that wind up motivating Taller till the very end. And, and that there's an irony there because Michael isn't even that overtly religious. I mean, Seyfried even says at the end, like, you know, he wasn't religious. He just like wanted to talk with you about all this stuff. Um, as much as I really like that scene uh, of their conversation, the moment that I had that really started I guess cementing how locked into the story I was was um how left field Michael's suicide is. And the scene where Taller finds his body is shot so coldly, yeah, and so remorselessly that not only is it a swerve from a storytelling perspective, but just aesthetically, they're they're it it's it's like tossing a dead cat in someone's lap yeah here this now and i think that was the moment not only you know where i got swerved because i was thinking it would go one way uh writing wise and it went the other but um just in terms of something that starts making you realize why the film is sort of shot the way it is and and why the scenes kind of have this this coldness this hyper realism to it that's the first moment where we get something happening we're You really get the feeling that all of this is intentional and it's being done the way it is so that, you know, um, Schrader's weaving together a tapestry that he wants us to read very specifically. Yeah. You know, and uh, that moment, I think, was the first moment where it it really locked in for me. Sorry to... Uh, cut you off
0: no 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 no, you're fine and and just for listeners you know the michael suicide that happens like 25 minutes in i mean we're not again i can't stress enough how much this film i just don't believe can be spoiled especially because we could sit here and talk you like you and i could sit here and talk jake for an hour and a half and and how we are interpreting this may not be how a listener interprets it um and and and, and and i will once we get to the ending i will like let the listeners know like hey if you want to pause this and go check it out that's fine I still don't think it's it's gonna be a spoiler thing because there's no answer even as I yeah. read at the beginning schrader doesn't even have an answer this is you, just you like, take it as a
1: as a full piece it's yeah. not like you know
0: correct yeah there are there are two things I want to talk to you about that I'm gonna kind of put a pin in I'm gonna let you know that now and then I'm gonna I want us to talk about a few things to just kind of cover our bases before we get into kind of a bit more spoiler territory. Cause I I have, I have a, I want to talk about the magical mystery tour and I want to talk about the ending. Okay. And those are things that I want to kind of prepare people for, because even though, again, I don't think you can really ruin this movie. I think if anything, this is all just context to go into it with. However, if someone is very sensitive to spoilers, then by all means, we will give you the cue. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I want to first real quickly go back to my the visuals thing. I, I think the f- I'm just gonna throw a bunch of stuff at you, and then I'll let you kind of throw a bunch of stuff at me great. back here. But I just think this film looks great. I love the lighting. I love the camera work. I love the muted coloring. And by camera work, a lot of it's very kind of simple. Like you were saying, there there's like a very deliberate kind of pacing to to the uh, camera work. Uh, the film, I love how like dark and muted and hopeless it feels, which is also a representation. I think, of the, your protagonist here, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so I think just the visuals and how those tie into the characters, I think is really great. Again, the writing I've already talked about, I think is really great. The set decoration, or the design rather, <clears throat> excuse me, the set design is super interesting to me because I feel like hardly any of the rooms had anything in them. Uh, right, which <laughs> like I there also
1: think is very intentional.
0: Very intentional. I mean, dude, there's like, even the in in the two hundred and fifty year old building where the organ is like dude i've I've been in plenty of churches you know this because i I oh, yeah. grew up in church whereas you kind of sure. had more of a secular upbringing and that was something mm-hmm. that we always had a uh interesting conversations about because we just had different For perspectives sure. and I can tell you this man where if there was a little like loft with an organ in it there'd be shit all over that place you know what I mean but it's like very clinically just like empty and it's like just the organ. And I love that it's like such an attention getter too cuz you aren't thinking of anything other than the organ and what that represents and what these conversations represent. There's nothing to distract you. But then even in like the place like the parsonage, I guess, where he kind of hangs out a lot and where he lives, mm. even whenever he mm-hmm. goes to like uh different locations in the film, they're just there's nothing in there. I mean, literally his apartment I think has like a bed or something like, like there's nothing in there. The the whole living room is empty. Yeah. And I just found that so interesting. And uh, I'll let you kind of, sorry, I don't know why I'm like choking, but I'll let you kind of come back to that uh, when I pass it back to you here. Uh, I just found that really interesting. I have my own thoughts about why, but Mm -hmm. I'll kind of let you address that. Another thing is this is in four by three ratio. So this is like full screen ratio, not widescreen, which I find very interesting. In my notes, I put literally four by three ratio why do you think, Jake? Um, yeah. I'll let you touch on that, and I can reread any of these for you if you want me to. Sure. And I think the performance is Ethan Hawke is so great. I think he's so great in this. And i Ethan Hawke's one of those guys where if he's in a movie, I don't automatically think that's a great movie. But I'm also not disappointed that Ethan Hawke's in it, right? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm very kind of neutral on him, and he, there are some movies where I think he's super awesome. This being one of them, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead being one of them. And then there are other movies where it's like like sinister or something where it's like you did fine. You did you did the job. You know what I mean? Yeah. But this is this is an exceptional performance, I think. He did really great and I thought the performance is across the board. Cedric the entertainer. This like goofy guy, very much like if anybody did grow up in the church, you would know who TD Jakes is. Very much like this TD Jakes type uh, evangelistic personality, yeah. right? Um and uh this very boisterous black minister. And I just I, I thought he did great. What what perfect casting to me. I'd have never thought in a million I even had to look up IMDB while I'm watching it. Like, is this centered? Sedic- sure, yeah. Yeah. Really and I crazy. also
1: think very important of what you're saying is not a caricature no. of like the boisterous black minister either. Not not like a pencil drawing, like not at all. A, like a real person. You but
0: know? you also but back to my thing of like spiritual like um religious spirituality versus business, this idea of Christianity versus capitalism that the film deals mm-hmm. with, which we'll get into. <clears throat> um, I just think he hits that because there are times where you see that, that very not he's never cartoonish or, or never caricature ish, but he is, he does become that boisterous pastor sometimes. Yeah. Right. But then sometimes he's very reserved and very much a real human and having grown up my whole life with pastors, okay? Like, most of the men on my mom's side of the family are pastors, I feel like. So, uh, growing up in the household with a pastor. My grandpa is kind of an anomaly because he is the same on behind the from behind the pulpit than he is at home watching the Three Stooges. Same guy. But every other yeah. pastor I know very much has that. I'm in public. This is my persona. I'm at home. This is my persona. And it's not a two-faced thing. It's not what I mean. It's just... It's like they turn no, yeah, it on I know exactly and they're being mean. this person. Yeah. And then when they're back, they're a bit more reserved and quiet. Uh, and he hits that so well. So I want to pass that on Absolutely. to you, man. Like visuals, sure. writing, four by three ratio performances. Give Just vomit it all at me, Jake.
1: Yeah. So uh, just to, I guess, begin on aspect ratio. One thing that I think is very interesting is um, even before I had seen the film, uh, when it came out, I remember hearing that he shot it in Academy Ratio. And, um, you know, like knee jerk reflexively, like not seeing the film as like a film fan, you kind of react like, oh, that's cool. It's like an old school thing. It's like he's doing an old school thing. Yeah. When you watch the film, it, it apart from the aspect ratio, it is not shot like films were back in the no. 40s and 50s at that all. That was my first and, thought, and I dude. Think, I'm on your yeah, bus because that's think, where my mind was. Because of that, we have to look more towards function. Like, what was the function of that then? Because obviously, there's a world where people would do stuff like that just yeah. to give it an old school flair. Cough, Robert Eggers. End cough. But I, I think what's really interesting about First Reformed is um, so Academy's four by three. It's it's not quite a square, but in the context of what we're used to seeing widescreen films, it is it is way more square light. Yeah, it's
0: the old than, school uh, uh, full screen. Yeah.
1: Right. So, uh one thing that caught me when I was watching it is um this parallel with portrait photography. Um medium format is uh what's used to shoot a lot of like or you know, before digital became so prominent, what was used to shoot a lot of magazine covers, a lot of magazine spreads, stuff like that. And uh, when you get in a medium format, you have a couple different formats to choose from. One of the most popular was six by seven, which gives you a negative that is like, I think, almost six times as big as 35 millimeter film. Wow! I'm talking uh, photography, but 35 is basically thir- the same 35 as film. It's a little bit different. It has to do with perf holes. And at that point it gets too complex for my knowledge base, but six by seven is very similar to Academy ratio in that it is almost a square, but not entirely. And, uh, six by seven was favored for a lot of these spreads because you can make really nice full page prints with them. And I think when you watch first performed, uh, I think, That was kind of his intention, not so much an allusion to photography, but the close-ups in First Reformed feel very, very portrait-esque. Yeah. Way more than if he was just trying to do Academy Ratio to like, you know, channel like a 1940s or 1950s thing. They did not use close-ups nearly as much as, I mean, First Reformed is like half close-ups. I just based on my recollection of the film and um, with a more square image, your close-ups feel super intimate yeah. because you are boxing in the face of a person. You are not leaving room to see the windows or the alleyways in the background. And I, I think that's because this film is such an insular film. It is so Reverend Taller's film. And even the characters that we're following that aren't Reverend Taller are characters that, have such an impact on him and what's going on with his life. Uh, I think the point was that intimacy. I think the point of shooting four by three was for the way those close-ups feel because it's a little bit uncanny when when you're so not used to seeing films shot like that, especially in scenes like this conversation with Michael, especially in scenes like every time Tollers talking to um, Mary, Amanda Seyfried's character. Yeah. I feel it. It's it's uncanny. It you you feel almost too close to the people that you're dealing with. Um, just just in that, I feel like it it heightens your ability to relate to them emotionally,
0: dude. I you um, know I didn't even notice it was four by three until yeah. the end, which we'll get to it. And there's a point where Ethan hawk <clears throat> Why am I
1: choking? There's a point where I, I Ethan know. hawk Too much Drano. I know, right? <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting ahead of that. No, um,
0: but uh, it's funny because when Ethan Hawke starts to kind of break down, we'll just say it that way for now, and Mm -hmm. uh, I remember like the room was a lot brighter than a lot of the rest of the film, and there's just a lot going on, and I remember noticing it then. And I was like, oh, shit, has the whole movie been that way? Or is this like a Grand Budapest Hotel thing where shit's changing on me and I'm not noticing it, you know? Um, But it was so, like... I mean that as a testament to how effective it was in terms of like, it didn't even draw my attention to it being, Mm -hmm. it seemed so intentional that I just didn't notice it uh, until there was a certain point where I did feel something that was in relation to that ratio and uh, then I had, like, even today, I went back and just skimmed through the movie. I'm like, fuck, all that whole movie was 4 by 3 and I yeah. didn't even realize it, you know? I think partially because yeah, no, it no, is no such no
1: Xavier Dolan games here where we <laughs> shift halfway through the movie. Yeah. Schrader wants us to know what's going on, and, you know, we stay there.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I, I thought it was an interesting choice. I don't have any feelings for or against it, really. I just thought, man, yeah. what, an, what a good intentional choice. It feels that choice. way, and I, I agree with you. Um, I,
1: I really think he wants us to feel those close-ups as portraits. That's that's basically me finding a way to say what I took yeah. far too many words to say and he, and he
0: loved. I mean, dude, it's all those dudes love old cinema too. And I don't. Again, I yeah. I, I will not. I don't believe that any of this was just for some kind of uh, uh, trivial thing. As like, I like old yeah. movies. I'm not saying that but like clearly these people were taught how storytelling exists from other filmmakers before them that filmed Absolutely. in the academy ratio so part of me also wonders like man is this how he pictured it like this is what yeah, a frame yeah. should look like you know totally um, i mean
1: he you know he's a student and a teacher of film and yeah. you know he was he wrote film criticism before you know even sort of getting into the industry uh, himself and i think That is tantamount with someone that is going to think about these things on a level even more than sort of your average rented director that still has to think about them as a byproduct of their job. To to that end, I think just the sparseness of the production design is a similar thing. Um, That felt very Japanese to me Mm -hmm. in terms of ways to organize space, Uh, knowing a little bit about Schrader. Uh, I think he was married to a Japanese woman for a while and he's sort of enmeshed in that culture. His first script that he sold was uh the Yakuza, which was yeah. directed by Cindy Pollock. Actually, at the time, one of the highest sales for a spec script just in the history of the industry. Of course, in 1970 or whatever that was, it probably would have been like, you know, a record-breaking spec sale would have been like, <laughs> I don't know, 25 grand or something. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's saying that much by today's standards, but Just, and you know, uh, doing a film about uh, Mishima, I I think he's really juiced into that world. So I I think there's an aesthetic affinity he probably has for spaces that feel Japanese, but I think more in line with uh, Taller and Taller's character, my thinking is that he wants to create a space that is very empty and sullen Uh, Well, yeah, it's it's, our our main character is is, you know, it's like it's like someone who's trying to be stoic, but it's not working out for them. That's that's how it felt for me. Um, I I haven't I don't want to feign that I've read the entire screenplay, but um, I've thumbed through the screenplay, too. And in the in the very first scene, uh, Schrader writes something along the lines of, you know. This is Ernst Toller. Toller is in agony. Yeah. And I think, again, uh, writer-director, we have the luxury of seeing how this guy first described what he would then have to execute as a film. And uh, knowing that he was going into it, picturing Toller as someone experiencing agony, I think, you know, production design, framing, all of this is to paint the portrait of him so that we'll feel what he's going through.
0: Yeah, my perspective on the set design, speaking to to this end, uh, you know, uh, it's very clear to me. I'm not surprised by the script thing. That's a great addition uh, to kind of my knowledge on this because he, from the beginning of the film, he's, I mean, I believe the opening sequence actually is Ethan, or I almost said Ethan Hawke, but uh, Reverend Toller's, which Mm -hmm. is Ethan Hawke, but Reverend Toller starts a journal that he plans to write for 12 months, Um, just as like an exercise, and then he's going to destroy it. He's going to shred it and then burn it um, because it's just for him. Um, But the things he's writing, I mean, there are times where he's kind of writing more just introspectively, and then he's writing like a tormented soul that the Mm -hmm. next day he rips those pages out because he doesn't want to remember those things. He doesn't believe those are truly his ideas when in reality it is who you are. You're avoiding this, right? And <clears throat> I'm choking to death. Anyways, I, I think the said design thing is also just like a really great representation of him. I mean, think mm. think about when he talks to Michael. Like, what, what does he have going on? He's, you know, pissing blood, okay? He's he's in agony, uh, yeah. even when he has to use the bathroom. So he clearly has something physically wrong, like health-wise, wrong with him. Um, all he does is what he's basically asked to do by the church uh, he just like runs this place. He's basically just a caretaker. Uh, mm-hmm. He has no one going to his church, with the exception of a handful of people that he kind of considers friends or people that admire him for some other reason. Yeah, and so I mean he his life is empty. So you know, I mean, it, it's not a surprise that the set design when it relates to him is like very empty because yeah. I mean what what does he have to to work with?
1: I I think he, like, Schrader really wants no reprieve for the desolation. You know, this is a movie where he wants us to be with him all the time, and there are no breaks from it. And he doesn't want to give us that sort of out. Like, I I think in a lot of other films, there maybe early on would have been some sort of party scene, some sort of get-together scene where we would... See this sort of damaged main character try and interface with reality. Like we don't even get that. Even if that scene in another film would serve to basically express the same idea, which is like, oh, look how alone and sort of away off on his own this guy is. Trader doesn't even want to do that because I think even showing us life would be like too optimistic for a hundred percent what's going on in this guy's head. You know. And the second half of the film just builds upon, you know, all these things that are established so early in the first place.
0: Yeah. I, I want to take a little bit of a detour before we go too far into time here. Uh yeah. Because I do, I really want to save some time for this magical mystery tour in the ending here. These are, uh, I mean, that would be the most quote-unquote spoiler territory, even again, even though I don't think that's possible here. But, um Am am I just a complete, like, pretentious plebeian asshole for thinking there's just some direct kind of parallel to taxi driver here? Because as I'm watching this, as I'm watching this, I'm like, this is fucking Travis Bickle if he weren't a taxi driver. Yeah. And it wasn't directly Vietnam that fucked with him and he didn't have PTSD. But it's like Travis Bickle as a reverend. Like, because I'm just like watching, and even the end where. It's open to your interpretation of what happened, right? There, There's no clear answer, which this has been debated for decades now with Taxi Driver. What does the end mm-hmm. mean? And then, like I said, if you Google First Reform, the first auto, like auto-submission yeah. in the field is going to be ending. First Reform
1: ending. Yes. And then the second is First Reformed feet pics. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you know that. That's really yeah. great. Um, it's it's not, but I'm just you know, that seems to be popular when you when you Google literally anyone's name.
0: That's invariably. super funny feet pics. Um, yeah. But no, I like what. What do you think about this? Because Taxi Driver is one of my favorite films, and uh, so I and I've seen it so many times. And I, and I don't. I think it was the later conference. It wasn't the one I went to with you when I, I did a yeah. conference on on Taxi Driver. So I've watched it a lot. I've analyzed the shit out of it. It's so one of the first things that pops into my mind when movies are have similarities to it. And it was the first yeah. thing I picked out in this, but then it was one of those things where it's like, is it just because I'm so familiar with it and it's the same writer and I'm getting it's, into I it? I could
1: confirm objectively that it's not. Because yeah. Tell I, me your I listened on to that. Yeah, I listened to an interview with Schrader where they asked him about that. And man, Schrader is like just operating on an, on another level with with the writing, you know. Um he, he has said that he is a bad employee in that when he writes he writes for himself and yeah. in this industry that has led him to I, I think not necessarily have access to a certain tier of job yeah. <laughs> that would have made his life a lot easier uh, uh, financially speaking you know uh, but you know he says he it has to be for him. And, and it has to be, when he writes something, it has to be something that's true to what he's feeling at the time. And um, again, I don't remember the exact verbiage used or whatever, but he said he, he noticed early on a certain parallel between Taller and Bickle. And instead of trying to do kind of these mental gymnastics to avoid it, he leaned into it. So I, I think especially when, he goes from putting the writer hat on to putting the director hat on. He had all this stuff that was sort of directly primed for uh alluding to taxi driver. Obviously, there's there's uh specifics. There's 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 stuff with um taller's diet, there's stuff with shots of the concoctions of liquid and the way we focus on that. And towards the ending, this this idea that there's an initial plan that's aborted and we do another plan instead. Uh, I, I, I totally don't think that's you. And I think Schrader's words pretty much confirm that. He, 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 from what I understand, he chose to lean into it because that would create, I, I think, uh, a more intuitive, organic piece of material written. Um, and I think it's it's interesting. And I yeah. think he was probably also interested in, well, well what would the sort of 2017 version yeah. of a guy who was feeling these things
0: be dealing with? Yeah, you know? and, and it, it doesn't feel like Taxi Driver to me. Like when watching no. it, it wasn't. it's not a clone by any means, so I don't want to mislead yeah. anybody listening who hasn't watched it uh, yet. There, um, there's
1: just nods. There's nods yes. that I think are very intentional in the context of... What was going in his mind yeah. when he made
0: it? Even even with the journal entries, you know, where he'll have like yeah. uh, he'll have these voiceovers. What's interesting is they're two different characters. So Travis Bickle yep. and uh, Reverend. Uh, why am I forgetting his name right now? Taller. Taller. Thank you. Oh my God, Reverend Taller and Travis Bickle are very different people. Uh, mm-hmm. They had very different situations, and they're dealing with very different issues. But they deal with them interestingly in a similar way because Bickle obviously is driving around as taxi driver. And he's just, like, going off about, like, the scum and what do we do about this. And he's asking himself these questions while also just kind of, like, criticizing and judging all of these people. And what's interesting is Reverend Tuller does something similar, but within the framework of his, of his like, spirituality, right? Like, everything's almost a question to God. Yeah. Right? Like, can we be forgiven? Right.
1: I I think there's a very interesting, though, they are very different characters. I I think what they're going through is incredibly similar, at at least in the sense that you can drop a Venn diagram. Yes. You will have the most stuff to put in the middle of that Venn diagram. Yeah. I, I think Schrader is just really adept at creating these portraits of people that become so overburdened by the existential terror of what's going on around them, that they are forced, they are forced and compelled to find ulterior motives to deal with that terror. And I think as far as Travis goes, it's, you you can make the argument that there's subtextual Vietnam trauma going on with him, but the film barely ever alludes to that at all. With, with Travis, I, I think it's, this sort of reflection of what was happening uh, in the '70s in terms of urban decay and this sort of great promise of post World War II was starting to like uh, win- like uh, wilt and die in front of everyone. And I think Travis was not understanding his place or his inability to connect with people. And I think taller, it's almost the exact same thing. The 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 only difference is instead of specific New York urban decay, it's it's earthly decay and instead of it being this sort of young person what do i do with my life now angst it's someone that's trying to pick up the pieces of their life after immense trauma which they just reveal outright early on yeah. in the case They're, of in taller the and
0: conversation with and, michael actually yeah. The,
1: yeah having having a, a dead son and a, a marriage that dissolved which when i first watched that movie it seemed almost like a misstep from a writing perspective because you usually don't, you know, again, I'm generalizing here, but you usually don't want to have a scene where someone's like, by the way, here's all my damage just right off the bat, you know, that's something that I think in a different film, you would want to parse out in little steps. But, um, I, I think Schrader's decision to do that was, um, that he wanted to give us, it, it was more important to get that out of the way and have a reference frame for everything we see after it than um, parse it out. Because because the point of First performed isn't finding out that Taller lost a son. The point of First performed is what is he going to do now that he is having this sort of life phase of tremendous existential angst and, um, you know, as he wrote in the script, agony. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, and I think another part of it, and this is the last thing I want to talk about before we get to uh, quote-unquote spoilers, um, yeah. is you kind of touched on this before. You know, uh, I love dissecting the church, and I love when when films do this, and I love the very real cognitive dissonance that a lot of, not only myself, but a lot of my friends who grew up in the church or were involved in it very deeply, the cognitive dissonance you have, where... You know, you see essentially capitalism or business, you know, versus these religious or spiritual practices mm-hmm. and how they often don't align. You know, if, if, you know, it's the whole idea of like, if God is love, then why do people that like live by God hate so many people? right? From the perspective of an outsider, so to speak. And so what's interesting is business and religion are like actually two very different things, but they seem so synonymous because of our culture, right? Like yeah, prosperity, especially in, and, in
1: America. Yes.
0: Yes. And, and mega churches that have like, that are actual like businesses, you know, like literally. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> um, yeah, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, like not very many film films deal with like religion in this way either. And one thing that I really love is uh, how Reverend Toller didn't come into this as a person who grew up in church and really like, like this was his life goal. Like, no, he was like in the military and then he just was like someone, the way he even puts it, I think in the movie is like, yeah, like the Reverend gave me a break. Like he let yeah. me, he helped, he <laughs> let me do this job. So yeah. if, it's funny because, so you basically, you have this outsider who is not even really thinking of the spiritual consequences until he's confronted with this environmental activism stuff. And then he starts to put into perspective, wait, hold on, but this is God's creation. We're destroying this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it just starts to get this cognitive dissonance that I think is really found, like, fundamental to uh, his character. And there's another movie that kind of deals with religion similarly, and I'm assuming you've seen it, but it was from 2014 called Calvary. Did you ever see Called- that? Called Calvary.
1: Oh no, that was with uh Gleason. Yes. Yeah. I really like him as an actor. I didn't see the film
0: though. You, you gotta see it because Brendan Gleason's priest is I mean, they're very different characters, they're struggling with different things, you know. But uh that very down-to-earth, we'll have a beer with you, he'll say you know curse words or whatever like yeah just like
1: more nuance for a character having that occupation than maybe typically we get yeah
0: and what's funny is most of the pastors that i know okay maybe not most but a lot of the pastors i know are like that like you know Mm -hmm. like one of my close friends uh is a pastor and he's just tatted from like shoulder to fingertips and he'll drink beer and say fuck all the time like he doesn't give a shit.
1: Just just like uh one of the community leaders in the film who's talking to the kids with uh Toller during that one scene. Yeah. He's got the tats, faith, redemption. Yeah. Yeah. And he, it's not know, those he types. He just wants to yeah. rap with the kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. My friend has like death metal tattoos, but it's fine. Sure. So. <laughs> a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but that scene is is really different. Kind important of too. Face. Like where where Reverend Toller's welcomed into The Abundant Life Church, which is kind of the Mm -hmm. overseers of his church, uh, the First Reformed Church, and uh, he's talking with the youth, and they're having a circle, and they're talking. You have the real, you have the hip, like uh, young adult who's like running the youth, right? And he's like has the circle, and everyone's kind of talking, and whenever Reverend Toller starts to basically talk about how, you know, if we really followed. Jesus' teachings, he doesn't want us to be wealthy. Like, that's not yeah. his purpose. I mean, if someone is, fine, but that's, that has nothing to do with Jesus, you know, blah, blah. And he starts talking which, about... Which
1: is is a great thing that comes up in films a lot. I'm thinking specifically of Last Crusade when they have to they have to find the grail. They have to choose which the grail yeah. is. And, and Indy is the only one that's like, Jesus was a carpenter. He wouldn't have had like yeah. a jeweled flask. Much different film, but I think, an interesting conceptual parallel. Absolutely.
0: It's not one that we think about a lot. You know, I, I went yeah. to, I've told you this before, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast, but in 2004, I went to a Bible college because I grew up in church. Um, and I just, at one point, I just thought I'll be a music director at a church or something, maybe, I don't know, you know, because I, I didn't want to be a pastor. So anyways, while I'm there, I took this class called Life of Christ. And what was so great about it is we looked at, we did not look at Jesus divine. We looked at him as purely human. The the, the side mm-hmm. of humanity and, and what that looked like. This changed my whole worldview in general. But I remember there was one point where we read a Max Licato quote, which is a, uh, uh, he's an author. And the quote was basically like, you know, I'm paraphrasing and it's not exact, but it was just like, you know, did Jesus ever, you know, fart in class? Or did he have a crush on the girl next door? Did he have freckles? Did he you know what did was he tone deaf and i remember we got all hung up on this tone deaf thing like this one young lady was so adamant that he could sing perfectly <laughs> he's the son yeah. of god he well, worships god well i mean god. she she was she was there she
1: knew him so obviously and you know. she
0: was like a singer and like you know on the b team the b worship team you know and so like you know it's just funny that like we got in this big art, cuz i was like no i like the idea of jesus being toned down i'm like arguing with her for the sake of it but it's just my point is it's just really interesting how people view these yeah. things and i love when films especially like this uh really kind of tackle these these Have generally especially yeah these general ideas and 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 the the kid that starts telling off reverend toller about like i don't even want to go into it it sounds like some stupid fucking trump shit or something but well yeah um, he
1: he obviously represents a, a a type of let's call it like religious anti-sentimentality that i i think is is good for Toller to have to sort of just conceptually that he has to fight against it because we don't even see what what Toller says to that kid but i i think it's harder for kids because you know as as until we're until we're in our early 20s we're we're sort of raised and reared to like understand rules and to follow rules and uh, and uh you know depending on what you go in from an education perspective so many educational systems are like hit scans for like did you memorize the thing it's all codification and and so i I think not having gone to uh you know, bible school or sunday school or anything like that i could imagine there's this weird phase where kids are kind of struggling to um put elements of spirituality and faith into this box of codification everything is a certain way that virtually all other aspects of our life as kids are run by so uh, fortunate that I sort of never had to go through that, but I can yeah. imagine it would be and I only, challenging for everyone invo- involved. Yeah,
0: I, I only made it to college a year, so <laughs> yeah, <There laughs> I you was, go. like became way too unhappy there. I was very frustrated, but my point is, I love the way that they handle um, kind of the spiritual aspect, especially uh, again, the, the capitalism versus Christianity, how those mm-hmm. are like very intertwined in our culture and the, especially American culture. Um, And Western culture, but uh, I think they really tackle that. And of course that becomes like a a very fundamental part of uh, like a, uh, a foundational thing in the film as well.
1: And really interesting from a plot perspective, because, you know, here we have taller, a guy who has sort of been pushed to his absolute emotional brink, who needs to console other people. And through that, he really gets turned on to, you know, these climate change issues, what we're doing to our earth, and if if God's create if, if earth is God's creation, then aren't we going against, you know, and it's interesting to see someone sort of in a position of authority, kind of struggling with something like we're saying teenagers do, where you're you're given these codified rules, and then sometimes the um, reality that you walk and experience seems to contradict the codification that we're told about i mean that that is that is such a fundamental part of the human experience to me is when things start happening to you that seem to go against uh platitudes and phrases you've received all your life
0: yeah i i can answer that question by the way what the what uh the uh cedric the entertainer's reverend i forget his name do you remember his Name, it's fine. His name don't. in the film, I don't actually. I, I have it, I don't know why I just asked you that. I have it, I have the IMDb opened uh, on here, but anyways, it's uh oh, Jeffers, that's right. So, Reverend Jeffers, yeah. um, you know, he, he does kind of uh, evade the question whenever uh Tollers is asking him. And uh, I remember when I was younger and I was finally getting into all the same things that Reverend Toller like is like struggling with, but even more. More so, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Uh, especially with prosperity gospel was like really big at that time. My mom was like really into it, and a lot of the church was, and I just wasn't. It didn't make sense to me. didn't align with things I'd been taught about Jesus, just whatever. And again, this is all when I was like 18, 19, up to maybe yeah. 21. You know, I had some big shifts. Uh, I mean, that's you know. a really transitional age, too. Yeah, and so I, I was learning a lot. I was questioning a lot. And I remember saying basically Tyler's argument to my grandma. Just like, why wouldn't you want to do what you can for this? And her response was because she was kind of a traditional evangelical. It was just that, well, Jesus is gonna come back before anything happens. Like he's gonna take us from this. So it doesn't really right. ultimately matter. Like this is the way it's going to be. Now, they also, you know, didn't believe that like we contributed to climate change or you know, like right. I mean, you know, it was sure. like, no, 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 this is just how it is, and Jesus is coming back, and that was the answer. And so, I don't know, man, I, I just, I, I felt so, it feels very almost cathartic watching movies like this from my, coming yeah, from my yeah. background, you know? Um, you but feel anyway, like you've walked that path before. Absolutely, yeah. I want to say this real quick, we're not done, but I do want to say, if you want to watch this, uh, before we get into a few spoilers, uh, now's the time to pause it. You can get it on Hulu, Apple TV Plus, or Amazon Prime with a Showtime subscription, uh, that's how I watched it. I might have Showtime, I didn't have to pay for anything, I just went to Hulu and it worked. Maybe I have it and I don't even know it. Maybe I've been Maybe. paying for it the whole time. Anyways, uh, but also, you can...
1: do you guys have Canopy in Indiana?
0: I'm not sure. I don't even so know what that I've, is.
1: I watched this on Canopy, which is... I'm talking for California. I, I think other states might do this, but I'm not sure. Um, if you have a library card in California, you can sign up for a free Canopy account. And there are... There's a plethora of films that are streaming wow. on Canopy... Uh, You can get Hereditary, you can get A Ghost Story, and Canopy is how I watched First Reformed.
0: Dude, there you go. So if you're in California, that works. If not, you should check it out with your local – because I know a lot of libraries are doing this now. I should check Mm -hmm. into this. Maybe that would be very informative for the listeners. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, if you want to check that out – and also, if you just have, like, access to Showtime, any kind of on-demand Showtime, this should be there. Uh, But like I said, Hulu, Apple TV+, Amazon Prime with a Showtime subscription – Uh, that definitely works there we're gonna take a very very short break and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about two really important aspects of the film again I don't think that this is something you can spoil I really think it's the entire piece needs to be seen to even understand what's going on Um, but that said some people may consider these spoilers so keep that in mind we're gonna come right back and we will talk about the ending as well as something called the magical mystery tour jake what a (laughs) weird thing Uh, all that and more we'll be right back All right, everybody, we're going to be talking about what some might consider spoilers, even though I don't, but I also don't want to be so presumptuous to assume people wouldn't find it to be a spoiler and then, then be pissed at me for talking about the end of the film. But before we get to the end, there are two, there are two hang-ups I had, Jake. And, and I have a struggle here, okay? Because you have the magical mystery tour, which we're going to talk about here first, and then we mm-hmm. also have the ending of the film. And as I'm watching them, full transparency. I hated these moments. I hated the ending of this film and I hated the magical mystery tour pulled me out of the film. I was able afterwards to kind of come up with my reasons for why I think these exist and why they're important to, especially Reverend Tollers totally, totally respect those intentions. But I I'm still kind of on the fence about these. And that's why I'm excited to talk about these and also talk about them explicitly. That's why I wanted to kind of Mm -hmm. separate that. And we're going to get into just like, just, talking no no holds barred I, no holds barred um i'm also <laughs> jake pointed this out to me i'm wearing a t-shirt <laughs> that is an exploding barbed wire death match wrestling like perf- Uh, Professional wrestling T-shirt that was from an AEW event. If you're a wrestling fan, well, FMW used to do them in Japan, right? That's the Yeah,
1: yeah. They they were that uh, people called it garbage wrestling, but FMW (laughs) got really huge in Japan in the '90s, and that's where sort of the you know the exploding ring, electrified barbed wire, all that stuff sort of became uh, mainstay.
0: Yeah, and it's a big gimmick, but it's also like I mean they're really violent matches. Anyway, so I'm wearing this thing, and Jake (laughs) asked me if. Like I wore this for this specific, right? Uh, for the specific movie, you'll under, understand why the exploding and the barbed wire really ties in uh, to yeah. the movie here. So uh, we'll come back to that later. So Jake, I want to talk about yeah. the myst- uh, magical mystery tour. I'm going to set it up real quick. Uh, in the film, you have uh, Seafried's character Mary. She comes over very distraught to talk to Reverend Toller, and uh, they're sitting in there, and she and she proceeds to tell Reverend Toller and after I'm done, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure this is how it goes. She's telling uh, Reverend Toller about something that she and Michael used to do to kind of center themselves, you know, almost spiritually, you know, uh, where they would lay fully clothed on top of each other, facing each other, noses touching, basically, and they would just stare into each other's eyes, and it would somehow have the spiritual transcendent experience from this. And so um, in, in a very kind of like, awkward and off-putting moment. Um, the Reverend's like, do you want me to do that with you? And she's like, no. And then very quickly, she's like, well, kind of, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. would you do that? Yeah. And then they do it. Now, here's mm-hmm. the weird thing. Regardless of any kind of intentionality behind it, okay? Yeah. This stands out like a sore thumb at this point. Can you at least agree with that? Like, regardless of whether it has 100%. intention. 100 Because 100%. they've never been this close, ever. Nor has Reverend Tyler even remotely... Like, I mean, it's clear that he's, like, finds Mary compelling, right? There's no overt flirting or anything like Nothing that, Nothing like though. that, no. And, and and of course, we also, again, now that we're in kind of spoiler territory, like, of course, by this point, Reverend Toller is very much kind of picking up where Michael left off, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a point where they find an exploding suicide vest, hence the exploding barbed wire deathmatch, one of the references. They... Uh, find a, an exploding suicide vest that Michael was hiding in their in their shed, and um, the Reverend takes it to dispose of it, but he never disposes of it. And now he's looking at it, and he's watching videos of suicide bombers walking around it's, and exploding. It's a
1: morbid which, fascination yes, that yeah. he sort of starts to develop in the wake of Michael's suicide. Yeah,
0: like someone would care so much about this subject that they would go to this extent, which I think is kind of the the uh, the tipping point to get him so fascinated with it. Like, why would you go yeah. to this extent? And so, um, so yeah, no overt flirting with Mary. And then out of nowhere, they're put in this extremely intimate situation. Again, going back yeah. to the four by three, it's only even more intimate because of this ratio. And then they are literally, they begin literally levitating off the ground. And then in clearly a green screen situation, they, you just see the earth beneath them, and there's mm-hmm. beautiful, lush wilderness and mountains and very natural landscapes, even over cities. And then it slowly, you see you see uh, uh, Reverend Toller kind of move her hair out of his face, and you can see his face as he looks distraught as the images around him start to turn to pollution and the environmental stuff, right? And before I go on about this, I would like to know your thoughts about the Magical Mystery Tour sure. and how you think this fits into the overall scheme of things because th- this one, this really challenged me.
1: Sure. Yeah, that that seems like uh, an understandable reaction and it's, it's one that I had too. I, I think there's kind of two different ways I want to hit this. One is from like what I know to be true about Schrader's style and one is just my personal reaction to it. Um, anyone that is familiar with Schrader's writing on film and his criticism on film, he's a big believer in transcendental style. Yeah. And uh, uh, without getting too in the weeds with film theory and all this, basically Schrader thinks that um, based on filmmakers that he has seen employ this, that he was very affected by, such as Brisson, among others. Yeah. Um, You want your film to be sort of painfully ultra-realistic. So the one, two, three times, you have something you really want to express and you go full-fledged, formalist, like expressionist, do everything you can, even if it's unrealistic, so that those moments hit like a 100 times greater. And this film is just, I think, a perfect example of transcendental style because he follows it to the T. The film is ultra-realistic, except for like the two sequences where it is so not. So the fact that they stuck out like a sore thumb to you, that was the intention, you know, and I feel very confident in saying that even though I normally don't like to be like objectively this is what he wants blah 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 blah. Yeah. Having said that, the first time I saw it, I it took me out of it and it it that scene in particular struck a weird chord with me partially because at its core, I really liked what it was trying to do in terms of portraying an intimate moment between two people that have sort of run out of options for ways to alleviate what's going on within them. Um, There exists, I think, an objective argument that the green screening might be a little much, but I think the fact that there is that turn where they're sharing this beautiful intimate um decidedly non-sexual moment together watching the earth pass them by and all of a sudden like you said it shifts instead of seeing these luscious vistas and these cityscapes and stuff we start to see blight and garbage and landfills and flaming fields it's yep. it's just fields on one of hand, rubber
0: tires just
1: yeah <laughs> on on one hand it feels very like biblical, very Old Testament. But on the other hand, it feels very like those videos they would show us in school in the 90s, urging us to recycle. So it's this really weird, interesting hybrid of, um, I think what Toller perceives as a hell, which is not hellfire and brimstone, like he's some preacher in yeah. Tennessee in the 1960s, he sees hell as being a, a blighted, miserable earth. Yeah, And man, it's so hard for me to be like, he did something wrong because it's not my place to say what's right or wrong. It's just Schrader made the film and we're here to talk about it. The levitation in the green screen, this is a $3 million movie doing that.
0: Yeah. This is
1: not a $50 million movie doing that. So you're going to see the seams a little bit. I will say though, that I really like where the scene winds up And my interpretation was in this stage of their life where personal connections seems so stilted and hard for everyone to do, specifically Taller, he is given this gold in the form of this intimate moment with someone that he's growing to care very deeply about. And while doing it, his brain still drifts to sort of the problem at hand. You know, the same thing Michael was doomed saying about how can we do this to our planet? And so my interpretation is, you know, when we meet Taller in the beginning, one of the reasons why he starts the journal is because he says he can't pray. If ever there is some sort of socially intimate equivalent to prayer, some sort of communal prayer you can do with another person that is about connection and intimacy more than it's about communion with God or whatever. I struggle to think of something better than being that physically close with another person without it becoming a sex thing and taller achieves that, but he is unable to keep his brain from thinking of hell, which is, a ruined
0: planet. Yeah, you know, I want to say one thing: the transcendental thing and and kind of uh, Schrader's philosophy on film. Uh, that's so we're on the same bus there. That that's kind of where yeah. I was. I do again, like you said, it's ultimately trivial for us to talk about what Schrader did wrong because he made it, and we're here to talk about it. But uh, at fear of being trivial, uh, sure, <laughs> it's one of those things Take where as dive. I as I see that, I automatically am like, you could have done this by doing this this and this and it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been that moment that pulls me out. Now that might be intentional. I mean you even have people back like Goddard and uh, different people who would intentionally pull you out of a movie cuz they don't want mm-hmm. they don't want their message to be muddled by manipulations, right? Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, maybe he's going that far. Maybe he's like, "No, no, no, no. I want to pull you out so you see what I'm telling you." But man, I just, I don't know if I can go there with this one. There are some movies that can do that, of course, but I still have hangups on this part. This is like one of those, like, again, it's back to like, I see the wires, I see why it's done. Yeah. And because I see why it's done, I'm like, but man, in the context of what you've established so far, you could have easily done X, Y, and Z and still stayed in it while also still being kind of that like powerful moment. Um, And I don't know, it, it... I did give it a pass on the green screen. Whenever I first brought this up, I wasn't bringing up the seams thing. Dude, it's a three and a half million dollar movie. Like, what are you going to do? And it looks pretty fucking good for a three and a half million dollar movie, knowing that they paid other people stuff and had like expenses. Right. So uh, I I get that. And that's that's less the thing. I I don't know. I'm trying really hard not to go into. But what I would have liked to have seen, because that's just like the really easy, trivial thing. I, don't, I just, yeah, I struggle with this, but I, I, am on your bus though. I mean, you, you did bring up a few things that uh, I don't yeah, think i got there it, yet. But the first
1: time I, I've seen the film twice now, the first time I saw it, it was a bigger hang up that I had, not even in the sense of enjoying the movie as a whole, but just in the sense of like, where was it? Maybe not firing on all cylinders. I, I just, I appreciate too much what it represents to fully jettison the creative choice, yeah. E- even though I'm like playing devil's advocate as we're talking, yeah. I do find it to be similarly jarring. I yeah. I think I would have less patience for it if I really didn't just like what it represented.
0: Sure. You know. And and honestly, that's the only reason that it's not like a complete like I don't know like pulling the you entire thinking? F- yeah like because yeah. I understand its purpose and that do, that puzzle piece does fit right it's just man the execution that, that's a big thing i criticize a lot of movies that we talk about on here because a lot of times joe will pick a movie and i'm like no i get it like the content's cool but the execution of this yeah is not you know we had a big argument about mcu like marvel cinematic universe um a couple weeks ago or whatever but that was like one of my big things like yeah everything you're saying is true but I'm talking about execution. Here, you know? Yeah. But anyway, so so yeah, that that's that's a the weird thing. I would love to hear any listeners who have seen it or go out to see this and then listen to this. Uh, I would love your your input on the Magical Mystery Tour. But this kind of also ties into the ending a little bit in terms of the ending gets pretty wild. Okay. And and yeah. and I want to I want to kind of again introduce this a bit and then pass it on to you.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: the ending. Basically, as the film kind of leads you on to believe, because as he's uh, looking at the exploding suicide vest and, uh, you know, he's watching these videos of suicide bombers and what this looks like, and he's clearly kind of doing homework in a way, right? Uh, He eventually, there's the 250th anniversary of this church, the first uh, reformed church that he kind of oversees, and they're going to have this big commemorative, like, 250... Uh, reconsecration yes, i think reconsecration, is what they call it or yes. yeah and so uh there're going to be tons of people there but one of the people is this stupid bastard this mm, stupid bulk, bastard yeah. named ed what is it bulk bulk yeah yeah idiot edward bulk and this guy is uh he's contributing as a corporate Man and his businesses and all the things he has his hands wrapped into, he's contributing to the uh, destruction of the world. And so, uh, you know, uh, Reverend Toller's whole plan is he's going to take this vest and he's going to introduce Ed Balk or whatever, or he's going to be there at least. Uh, Ed Balk is, and then he's just basically—I mean, it's implied that he's going to just suicide bomb this place to murder this guy that is responsible mm-hmm. for a lot of of uh, of pollution in in our yeah. world.
1: And then go out as a martyr yes, for a which, cause, as which Michael they talk about. helps yeah. him see.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he he implores Mary not to be there, to the extent of grabbing her by the shoulders and saying, I don't want you there. But he looks out the window, and who does he find walking into the church but Mary? Sweet Mary. This is where Reverend Toller starts to break down, because he can't do the thing. He's already late to the consecration that he's running. And so he strips off the vest and then he begins wrapping himself in this rusted barbed wire that he found yeah. that had uh, unfortunately been the demise of a poor little bunny rabbit or something yeah, uh, yeah, down by the fence. And he took it off the fence, but he still had it. And he wraps it around his body. and His body's bleeding from this razor wire, or barbed wire, whichever it was. Hence back to the exploding barbed wire t-shirt I'm wearing. Yes. I'm going to act the like that was on wearing. purpose. And anyways, I so
1: thought it was on purpose, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but anyway, so he wraps himself in barbed wire, which is a fucked up scene. Really, mm-hmm. really intense. Like this is yeah. the kind of pops out and it intense. looks uncanny because oh it's goodness.
1: not it's not
0: filmed like a horror
1: film no. or it's not filmed like a torture scene. It's filmed with very standard key lighting, and yeah. that makes it just feel like that much more uncomfortable because it's just so left field and not what you're expecting.
0: It's 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 certainly a struggle man it, it's it can be hard to watch i think for some people because it's man it's pretty brutal and his reaction to it and he's just wrapping it around but it's the way he does it too he's just like ripping it around his body mm-hmm. and it just looks so vicious and then it cuts away and it cuts back to him there's just blood all over him and again this is not a horror movie like you said this is no, not no, like one i mean it makes no. it, it the context of it makes it very shocking now back to the magical i almost said school bus but the magical mystery tour how that was like a jarring thing. I think this is jarring in a way that I appre- like appreciate more personally, mm-hmm. right? Where yeah. though I understand the meaning of the other, this one is like, it has not been this violent. I mean, even Michael's suicide was gory, but you don't see it. But you, you don't see it. Yeah. You, 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 you just, just, just see the aftermath. After- yeah. Yeah. There you go. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. we use the exact same language, but anyways, this is the first time where we're seeing something pretty fucked up and you see him unhinged before your eyes from very confident and ready. He clearly had written like kind of a suicide note of sorts in his journal. Mm-hmm. He's ready to go. He, he engages the, uh, the wires in the vest so you know that it's, it's ready to go. And then he strips it all off and he's huffing and puffing around and he uh, puts barbed wire around him. And then I thought this was very interesting. He switches from the black robe to a white robe and you can see some of the blood soaking through.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and then he fills his whiskey glass or whatever it is, whatever alcohol he's drinking, whatever liquor, he empties that glass, and he puts Drano, which you've seen him clean his toilet with, the exact oh, same yeah. thing, and he fills it with Drano, and he's about to drink it, and then what catches his attention? No, one, uh, None other than Mary walking into the place. Now, prior to that, Cedric the Entertainer's Reverend Jeffers tries to get in and the door's locked. Okay. Mm-hmm. So somehow Mary gets into the place without being heard, right? Not breaking in or anything. She gets in. And then he drops the glass. And they both kind of walk like with a purpose toward each other, embrace and begin kissing. As we get this almost like De Palma, you know, uh uh body double circling mm-hmm. of the <laughs> Of the makeout, right? Just dollying around him yeah. like a hundred yeah. times before, and, you know. And then it cuts to black. And yeah. that's the end. We we don't see the we don't see an explosion. We don't see whether he lives or dies. And this is the big debate, Jake. And I, I just mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of feelings about this and I have a lot of thoughts. Um and this is another one like the magical mystery tour where pulled me out of it. I I, I believe after I watched it, before I had a chance to process any thought about it, I thought well, that was a weird ending. I like literally said that out loud. Um, as I thought about it, I came up with a lot of possibilities that this could be, which, again, going back to your original at the very beginning of the episode, how entertainment can be defined, I found it was very entertaining for me to be thinking about, like, wait, but why would this choice be made? It's very intentional, yeah. clearly. But yeah. I want to pass it on to you before I get into my sure. thoughts here. You know, how do you feel about this ending, man?
1: Yeah, a couple things. Uh, I'm going to start by saying, I'm just going to talk about how it makes me feel because I feel like that interview with Sophia and Schrader, Schrader himself is like, I don't know what it means. It's maybe this or this, who knows. So I'm not going to tell you, here's what I think happens. I'm just going to sort of hit it from the perspective of here's what it made me feel. Uh, I think it's very interesting first to point out that a lot of people say, The camera never moves until the dolly at the very end when they're kissing. Rewatching the film, that's not entirely true. Um, That great scene where we know that Toller is planning uh, to blow himself up, and Mary's like, oh, I'm gonna come to that. And that great scene where he's like, no, don't. She's like, no, I don't mind. Don't, seriously don't. And it kind of stops the room. The minute, not even minute, the second, Mary says, Oh, I'm gonna come to that. We start zooming in on them. And some conversations said the camera doesn't move to the very end. So I think it's obviously the camera barely moves in the film at all. So whenever (laughs) it moves, it's significant. But I find it very interesting that the actual first movement is this thing that's setting the stage for what the last you know 15 minutes wind up being. Um yeah, it's the barbed wire. Uh, him deciding not to bond the church. I mean, it's, it's like, it's a move, man. It's a move. And as you're watching it, it's, it's that great combination of like left field, but still compelling. Where like, you just, you want to keep watching. Cause That's you what I'm don't, saying. you fucking don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I love the ending the first time I watched the movie. It, if, if for only because it left me disturbed on a profound level that i couldn't quite put into words and and that feeling i think was the sum total of the story leading up to that point every aesthetic decision we were seeing like when he's wrapping himself in the barbed wire it's weirdly clean and bright yeah um cutting back to aster singing that's that hymn in the church yeah gives it that very weird juxtaposition of the song being sung is this uplifting uh, religious spiritual that put into this context feels very uncomfortable and, and creepy. Yeah. The fact that um, the film cuts to black in this moment. And then when the credits start, we're back to a uh, lust like very dark minimal score, which, which, I mean, the film is a bitter pill, like, even though it's nice to see him kissing Mary at the end, it it doesn't end with you feeling necessarily hopeful, you know, and I, I just think all those ingredients struck this weird chord with me that worked, if if only because I, I can't remember the last time a film made me feel this way. Um, I mean, I, obviously, the fact that the room was locked, and yet, he looks over and Mary's standing there, I I think is pretty good evidence that what we're seeing is not necessarily what was happening in the room. Yeah. Um, Also, I'm typically the guy that is like, very, very zealous about when like a film comes out or I see a film and it has like some weird ending. I'm usually the guy that's like, it means what you fucking want. Like there's no objective, whatever. I'm not ashamed to admit after I watched the movie I immediately texted a bunch of my friends that had seen it and I was like what like what do you think? And I'm usually not like that at all but there there was something about how it made me feel where like I needed to know like <laughs> how other people reacted to it. I yeah. needed to know if it was affecting them on the same level that it was affecting me. And I think what you said at the beginning the the fact that you had something like 17 friends, you know, text you about this, I, I think is is proof in motion of the weird power this ending has sure. where we're seeing what invariably would be this crazy internal struggle if you were moments away from killing yourself. Or yeah. Not. I, I, Whether it be a bomb in a church or a cup of Dreno that that does the job. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I wanna read um unfiltered, just as is uh, Paul Schrader's quote that I had kind of intentionally mm, mm-hmm. um, changed. But I'm going to reread it so that we can have the context again fresh in our minds. Yeah. He said to Sofia Coppola, he said, no, wrong, I'm in the wrong spot. One second. <laughs> uh, I was about to read completely the wrong quote. Let me get to it real fast. Um, Yeah. He says, I don't know what the what the ending is. It can be read in either one of two ways. One, that a miracle has occurred and his life is spared. So that, well, I'll come back to that. Schrader goes on to say, the other is equally, in my sense, optimistic, which is that he drinks the Drano and he's on all fours. He's throwing up his stomach and God comes over to him, who has not talked to him for the whole movie, and says, Reverend Toller, you want to know what heaven looks like? Here it is. This is exactly what it looks like. It looks like one long kiss, and that's the last thing he sees. So Mm -hmm. that's like a really interesting thing. But, you know, as I started thinking about it, I came back to the taxi driver comparison. Because the ending, the whole thing of the ending is, is it really that clean cut ending? Is this reality? Does he actually recover from this? And. And, you know, get all these, you know, pats on the back and the parents of Jodie Foster's character are you know, sending him letters. Or is this like essentially f- fantastical brain activity posthumously, like playing out the yeah. scene of of him, like basically getting all the things he wanted. Right. And yeah, that's it's so interesting because going back to this is the part that makes me like it because I'm going to be perfectly clear here with the exception of the barbed wire thing, well, actually just the whole, everything up to the kiss, everything up to Mary, I thought was so well done. Like I was Mm -hmm. so in dude. It had, it was just shocking and, and, and jarring enough to just like make me go, what the heck? Like I remember sitting up when it happened, just all of that, like what is happening? And Esther, just so everybody knows is, is a quote unquote love interest. Kind of like someone who's in love with him, at least. But she kind of represents yeah, I think the, the church. The
1: implication is that they hooked up once yes. and she was really into it and he wasn't. Yeah. And is kind of trying to be very friendly with her up till he's not. Yeah. Um, about not being interested.
0: Yeah. And she's really trying to get back with him here. And so you mentioned Esther. I wanted that to be clear. But Esther singing yeah. that song, you know, and And while we hear this this song with the organ and her voice, and then he's like freaking out. It's
1: bright and clean, but what we were seeing with taller is is the whole film
0: is dark, and then you get this scene of brightness, and it's the darkest point, right? Yeah. And so I love all of that, but I just still, it's one of those. It's it's that. It's almost the cognitive dissonance, right? It's almost the filmmaking me experience this thing, because like I love talking about it but I don't love experiencing the ending. Like I, yeah. I didn't leave with that feeling that you described. I left with like, well, that was weird. Like it just mm. like, it just kind of turned, like it went, I think maybe because it had signed a check once it started getting really intense, that when it just cut to black, it made it made me go, okay, hold on. I don't feel, it didn't, it didn't, that, that check didn't cash. You know what I'm saying? But then I thought about it. And so I'm still on the fence about this. Is my point? But then I thought about it. And I thought this goes back to my at the intro when I was talking about you know the the idea of struggling between hope and despair, right? And the way that I see it is, you have Reverend Toller. If he if he did indeed drink the Drano, but we mm-hmm. are then seeing basically from his point of view, or potentially like a a fantasy scene posthumously being kind of projected into this moment flawlessly. If that's the truth, then it's interesting because that's almost the sadder story that he gets, yeah. that he gets to be with Mary kind of for forever. And now he's like kissing her and they're like making out as the camera, like zooms around them because he kind of gave up on the world. Do you get what I mean? Like he I get gave exactly up. What you mean. Yeah. And so he did what Michael did. He, he was a victim to despair, yeah. but if he stays alive, then he is he has that hope, right? But having a terminal illness, being wrapped in rusted barbed wire, and almost draining drinking Drano, but not—I don't know how much his life he's going to have left. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, I. But then it's yeah. like he 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 can fight the good fight for whatever time he has left. Now, I, I if we're going to just kind of like talk about what ifs, I am inclined on a personal level, going back to how you felt about it it works a little bit better for me to think he took the Drano and this is like a fantasy, yeah. especially since the door was locked and she kind of just sure. shows up and
1: like, there's it, a lot of tells that what we're seeing isn't necessarily what is
0: happening in reality. Yeah. And, and that tends to be where I fall again, you can Google this and find different arguments for, I mean, there's no one right answer. I don't think, especially since Schrader even is just like, I don't know, just like figure it out, you know? Um, But yeah, all, all of that kind of time, back to you, I guess, you know, um, I know you've kind of already ex- expressed how you felt about it. Um, yeah. but like, was there a point where you just kind of went almost like the magical mystery tour where you kind of just went like, that's it. Or was that, was it really enough for you? No,
1: no. It, and I will say this, a lot of my thoughts on magical mystery tour and that whole sequence are, precipitated by like talking to other people thinking about it a lot like my my knee-jerk after that sequence was that it was like a weird part of the movie it yeah. didn't really do it for me but I really like what it represented sure. and you know the, i've I've grown in my appreciation of it especially after I saw the film a second time the the ending got me like the first time a hundred percent it 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 really locked into a part of <laughs> my being my soul whatever that was very I don't even want to say moved I I affected and compelled by it and I think I think the taxi driver comparison is honestly one of the things where the films stop relating to each other because on a personal level uh look everything's open to whatever people get out of it whatever blah 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 um I loathe the interpretation of Taxi Driver, that what we're seeing at the end is all a dream. I I think like most interpretations that end in, but it was all a dream, I think there's, there's not enough that, like it being a dream doesn't mean anything and it invalidates a lot of stuff that we've seen beforehand. I take a lot more personal satisfaction and more insight In the taxi driver being about a guy who was so deeply damaged, he did something insane that happened to sync up with what we, if we didn't really know him, would perceive as heroism. So my interpretation of taxi driver is much more, he went fucking batshit in a way that everyone was just like cool with and happy with. (laughs) And it was like weirdly what he needed to kind of kick himself out of a depression but in the final moments of that scene with Betsy, where he looks at her in the rearview mirror, and we get that really weird Bernard her- Herman score cue, um, you know, I think it's like, who knows if the next time he does that, it will be as well received by society? You know, I think a lot of the arguments that seem to bolster the interpretation of Taxi Driver's ending as being it's all a dream basically boil down to people saying, but it's weird the way they shot that. And it's like, you know, I don't know, grow up. Sometimes the more uncomfortable interpretation is the true one. Um, I really eschew most interpretations of films that are, it was all a dream that are, now, that are not dictated by things the director said specifically. I think that's a cop-out and it comes out of this weird millennial Reddit mentality we have of, isn't my interpretation cool? Isn't my headcanon cool? Um, I find it not, (laughs) I just find it not like conducive to like talking about art in a way that I find very rewarding. I think it's like this fun fantasy out It's this weird mental sandbox people like to play in to feel like they're above the material being presented to them. Anyway, that's, sorry, that's like my shoot (laughs) promo on that ending. I I think as far as First performed goes, there's a lot more that supports having multiple interpretations. And even if that wasn't the case, the director just said, I don't know what it means. So like, that's what it means. What it means is I don't know what it means. As far as what I get out of it personally beyond like, just being impacted by it. I think there's something to be said for, like, so much of the movie in the beginning sort of skirts with this idea of antinatalism and how Michael doesn't want to, like, bring a kid into this world. And, like, antinatalism is, like, a really dark way of thinking in a lot of ways because not only does it presuppose a reality that's evil, it presupposes um, us going against our programming as animals to have kids. Not that there's anything inherently good or bad about that, but like, you're, you know, the second you're going against human programming, it's sort of like, oh man, you must feel really deeply about this. Um, and I think, uh, look at where Taller is when we meet him. He's already like primed to believe what Michael has ready to tell him. He's primed to give up hope. If anything, the the first scene we meet him creating the journal, he's already on that path because he can't pray anymore. He's already, I think, closer to being that guy wrapping himself with barbed wire at the end of the movie than we want to think. What the movie is, is a whole bunch of events that just give him that final nudge. And it's a dark ending in the sense that we're watching the end of a guy that had already on some level kind of given up. I think the thing with Mary and the thing why that winds up being so powerful to me is, you know, you hear these stories about um, people that jump off of buildings or attempt suicide in a way where sometimes they fail and they wind up surviving. Sure. And the majority of them say, right when they jump, they regret it. Or right when they're about to hit the ground, they regret it. And I don't necessarily think Toller drinking the Drano regrets it as he's, as Schrader put it off camera somewhere, puking his guts out maybe. But I think the kiss with Mary is like kind of the film saying as fucked up as shit is, this is kind of what actually matters. And in Taller's darkest moment, that's kind of where his brain goes is you know, maybe the earth is fucked. Maybe it's like not good to bring people into this world. But man, I think like human connection is kind of the only thing we have that really gives us an engine for our existence. You know, that's me at my most optimistic looking at how do you not like see the film as some sort of treatise on antinatalism. And I I think it's like the pursuit of human connection is is... Like you can never really go wrong with that, you know? And I think in a weird way, that's why we have the Esther stuff and why he's so mean to her because that's sort of him doing it the wrong way. Uh, again, this is subtextual, but I think the implication is that they slept together one night yeah, and it was probably a really quick kind of spur of the moment thing.
0: And he was honestly probably he were, drunk because he drinks a lot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think him treating her so badly he basically says it he's like when i see you i see all my
0: weaknesses all my
1: shortcomings because that's that's like an unjust pursuit of that connection that is a quick fix that is acting on impulses not seeking the real sometimes to get the real you know he needs to be linked up with someone and they need to go they need to Uh, him and Mary need to draw closer to each other because Michael kills himself. And that's just a weird thing in reality where it takes that for two people to form a genuine connection. But I think the closest I come to having some sort of personal objective reading into the ending is that, you know, the barbed wire is taller punishing himself or taller punishing himself for not being able to go through with the bombing this this weird kind of old world religious penance for not being able to sort of follow through on what he committed to and punishing himself for it uh but the thing with mary is like you know this this midnight hour man that's really what matters after all though that's just that's yeah. just me
0: yeah it's dude it's just I, uh, I, jake's I, interpretation i really appreciate your interpretation because well, like i said I, I mean, I, I love thinking about movies. That's, like, one of my favorite things. I remember the first time I mm-hmm. saw Donnie Darko. This is going to be, like, a really yeah. lame comparison. But my friend Riley and I, I kid you not, talked on the phone for six hours Yeah. about what the ending of Donnie Darko means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is but before you I, even I don't it.
1: think that's a lame comparison at all because it's similar in that Richard Kelly was like, I don't know what it means. Yeah,
0: correct, yeah.
1: So, yeah, you, so you guys have this Rorschach that you can both kind of interplay with you know well,
0: it was awesome because we kind of came up with like we got it to where all the pieces fit you know what i mean and it was just like really awesome like we felt like we figured it out even if richard kelly doesn't know like we at least have our own personal yeah, yeah. kind of observation and and uh we've put we've put it together we put the puzzle together you, you had your
1: austin riley configuration correct to present. yeah and, yeah. and
0: I, we didn't even care if it was real it's just like no this makes sense to us now you know mm-hmm. and uh yeah I, and I find that conversation just as rewarding for First Reformed. But unlike Donnie Darko, I didn't have many f- personal feelings by the end. You know, like, cause you were talking about that's kind of what drove your your interest in like talking to people about it and like trying to f- kind of like yeah. piece together. I was together. compelled.
1: That's the yeah. only way I could describe it.
0: And I don't know, man. There's just uh, not, not to kind of bring down your your perspective, but just on mine, as as I watched it, I just remember, like I said, just thinking like, well, that was weird. Because I just, I guess I, maybe, like, this is how lame I am. Part of me was just like disappointed that he didn't blow himself up. <laughs> sure. Do you think though that, that that's like, to you,
1: that's you reacting as someone that just wanted spectacle? Or do you think just story-wise, you were kind of needing that final kind of climactic bump because what, what the, the story f- kind of solidify I, I
0: i don't think it was spectacle i think i think it was more of like that's what it was setting itself up to be which i know you can agree with up to a certain up until right before the barbed wire basically yeah. when mary shows up that's what it was setting up to be so that was my expectation i called that way early like, the first time they find the vest, I literally was like, wouldn't it be crazy if, like, he put that on and, like, tried to kill some, like, environmentally, yeah. uh, environmental polluters, you know? And that's, like, literally what they start setting up. And I was like, oh, shit, I like called this shit early. This is awesome. Do you and think then,
1: your satisfaction was marred by the fact that you were wrong? Because I think that's why I no, didn't well,
0: – I can I, tell you. I had a similar thing
1: with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where I really thought I knew where it was going. And then when it didn't go that way, I was slightly disappointed. That's a fair
0: point. Um, the reason I don't think is because I think my expectations of what the film is was not Schrader's expectations. Schrader yeah. is far more interested in Reverend Toller. Tull- uh, That's what yeah. his thing is. My interest was Reverend Toller's journey in the environmental activism. That's mm-hmm. where I felt it was going. It wasn't. It could have been activism in any way. Like it didn't even right, have to be environmental right. or no, it exactly. anything. Yeah. It's more of just his challenges with the spiritual aspect, which I've already explained why that was so, such a powerful thing to me um, because maybe of my upbringing. I mean, maybe my upbringing and my history gave me different expectations or at least desires, yeah. but I wanted to see him follow through with that because that's how he felt he had to be the martyr. Yeah, That's how he had to complete his spiritual journey. Whereas it seems to me that Schrader was less interested in the spiritual journey and much more interest. Well, in, in the same way I'm describing at least. Right. And more interested in, no, this is about Reverend Toller. This is about his dissonance. This is about yeah. his journey and the choices that he's making. And so I think, I think I just had a disconnect with yeah. where, where the think film ultimately went.
1: Because I could still look at that and be like, that final moment that embrace that connection that that kiss that seems to last forever somehow the ending points to taller pointing to that and being like that's what matters you know that's why he can't go through with it because you know this is like a pretty dismal 2 hours we watch and really the only person he cares about or connects with on a truly deep level is mary and of course, she's the one person that's gonna show up that he doesn't want there, that he doesn't he doesn't want, you know, I, I think there is an element of sacrifice in that he denies himself the satisfaction of fulfilling this martyr's quest because he cares about an individual more, you know? Sort of that, that old, this comes up in, in films a lot, it's like an archetypal trope where like you can either save the world or the person you love and how there's something very human about wanting to save the person instead yeah. of the world. Yeah. You know, that, it's, that, that's in Spider-Man. That's in the matrix. That's in so many of these films, you know?
0: Right. Um, anyways, that's uh that is our extended long form take on Paul Schrader's first reformed for all of you who have texted me, emailed me, so on to watch this over the years uh (laughs) hopefully you were not disappointed um and again hopefully you had a chance to see this or you were able to pause it where we told you and uh and uh, yeah get some insight if you didn't though and you were just like screw it and you listen to the whole thing please go watch it anyways because if you can't tell by the way jake and i are talking here uh it is i mean you're gonna have your own interpretation of this even if it's just something as simple as i don't like it and that's fine that's entirely yours hey man it's
1: it's worth the two hours.
0: Absolutely. And and just one last quick thing. You you mentioned uh, uh, Reverend Toller not being able to pray. And I remember when we were watching it, and this is just a testament to kind of close off Schrader here, uh, Reverend Toller not being able to pray, and I, Amanda, my wife, was like, uh, he can't pray. Like, just kind of like, you know, we kind of like snickered at it or whatever. But I don't think a lot of people, though, that are like, that haven't been like as deeply into Christianity or something as me, is when you pray, it's something very serious. And if you can't clear your mind and truly from your heart be able to pray, there's a conflict there. So when he can't Mm -hmm. pray, all that told me was he has too much inner conflict to be able to focus on God and speak to him reverently. And so that attention to detail with Schrader, I think is, if for no other reason, it's peppered throughout the entire film. Even whenever it says... Uh, God will forgive us. And he switches the words to say, will God forgive us? Even that little detail is so powerful. I I do think First Reformed is uh, a a good movie. It's something you got to use your brain for. Definitely go check it out. And hopefully you get something rewarding out of it. I mean, I had a few hangups. But overall, like I said, you know, I'm really happy that it exists, and I would encourage people to check it out. So definitely go check it out. Again, you can check Absolutely. it out on Hulu, Apple TV Plus, or Amazon Prime with a Showtime subscription. Or if you just have Showtime on demand in general, you can watch it. Tell us again what the thing was through the library in California. Yeah, so
1: I wish I actually did like five minutes of research before going on here <laughs> to give people a more accurate <laughs> depiction of this. Because I'm pretty sure Canopy is more than just California. But speaking as a Californian, if you're living in California, you can sign up for Canopy just by um, using your library card. Uh, It's completely free.
0: Canopy Library. Uh, Yeah, I pulled it up and I did not have enough time to figure it out. But the point is, it is K-A-N-O-P-Y. So go check that out. And you can stream classic cinema, indie film, and so on. That's what the little subtitle here on Google says. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, go check that out and see if uh, that's uh, around you somewhere. It might give you an opportunity to check this out. But, Jake, as always, buddy, thank you so much.
1: dude. Thank you for having me back on. This was great.
0: Hey, all right, that was my conversation with Jake Baudelaire about First Reform, the Paul Schrader flick. If you want to check it out, like I said, it is on Showtime, so anywhere the Showtime's on demand, Hulu, Amazon Prime, uh, any of the places that you can get a subscription to Showtime, you can find it there. And apparently this Canopy thing, you should totally Google that, see if in your area you can get uh, free movies through your library. It'd be great. Uh, I'm gonna quickly go through this, and then we're gonna get out of here because we've already went, a, you know, quite a bit longer than I expected. But when Jake and I start talking, man, we really. Ever since college, we've just always geeked hard about movies, uh, wrestling, anything. I mean, when we start geeking out about something, it goes. Next week, we're gonna. Uh, Joe and I are gonna be talking about Star Wars: A New Hope, which because it will be the 44-year anniversary of Star, the very first Star Wars that changed the game. And I understand that 44 years is not that cool of a number. It's not 45. It's not 50. It's not even 40. But you know what? It's my show and I don't want to wait. So 44 year anniversary it is. We're going to talk about Star Wars. I'm sure we'll break off and talk about Star Wars as a whole and the new films and whatever. But the focus will be Star Wars A New Hope. I'll also be doing an intro for Ingmar Bergman, uh, because I'm gonna be doing a mini-marathon on early Bergman movies. Uh, His very first film from 1946, Crisis, and then uh, consecutively from there. So uh, not every film, but I'm gonna be talking about Port of Call, Thirst to Joy, Summer Interlude, and Sawdust and Tinsel, which is the one I'm most excited about. I am actually going to watch all of the films prior to 1955, pretty much. Um, But those are the six I plan to cover here, and they're gonna be just short things, mostly to give context to the later uh, Bergman marathon that I'm gonna be doing with Matthew Soce later this year, and it'll be peppered throughout the year, uh, so all the episodes won't be back-to-back or anything. But the reason that that I wanted to do Bergman uh, kind of throughout the year is because uh, 2021 marks to the year 75 years since Bergman's debut picture in 1946. And I just think to keep a legacy, to still kind of be a revered international superpower, you know, posthumously, because he died in the early 2000s, to still be regarded as one of the greats. I mean, you know, he's just he's just one of those characters that you could spend a year on and just kind of talk about. So I'm gonna, uh, you know, the, the, the early Bergman marathon that I'm gonna do by myself, uh, I'll be doing that as my little short reviews before Joe and I or whoever my guest is and I talk long form. And, uh, you know, little five to ten minute things on each of these movies. Really brief, really simple, but also to kind of give context to the later uh, marathon I'm going to do with uh, Matthew Sosi So all that to say, uh, definitely stay tuned and uh, come hang out this next week. Also find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And hey, I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy.